Mr. Alvin Lee kicks off another two-hour session here today on the Radio Ranch. Roger says your host. It's the Friday, the Friday session, and that usually, almost always, includes a Brent Winters kind of guy, and we're always happy to have him, and I think everybody walks away from these shows a little fuller and a little better person, quite honestly, from the things we get into. Uh, Brent, we missed it by one day. Today's, What's that? Uh, two, today's 212. <laughs> 21 not 213 so george uh, washington's birthday is it george washington's birthday what they used to celebrate before we combined them into uh president's day good old days and we left uh, and we put a new you know why they did that they put a new uh a new day of course in the calendar of federal holidays and that was martin luther king day so now in the calendar the only two federal holidays related to a man are christmas and martin luther king day how about that mm-hmm. um, uh brenna listen he, he fooling around with those buttons i can see that you un unmuted the video so that's what the black so just hit that button and mute the video it's not a big deal because we got pretty good uh fidelity today but sometimes that extra video feed just eats up yeah there you go eats up uh, bandwidth and just makes a, a, a testy situation at times a little testier i was talking right before we got on the air and let's go ahead and get this out of the way um yesterday i like to listen to classical music and uh-huh. yesterday I was clicked on a, I don't know, one of these five-hour things of master classical. And you know how YouTube, they don't make enough revenue. And so they put those little ads there at the front for you. And uh-huh. usually I can't wait to get to the skip ahead button and, and get rid of it. But this one caught my eye and ear, and I think it might catch yours. Um, and it was a story about two guys that were high-tech engineers, and they got frustrated. They found out what was going on in the industry, and that is when a, you sign up with an ISP provider, they yep. say they're going to give you all this speed, and then they throttle it back intentionally, and that's why you get a lot of the buffering and whatnot. And yep. so yep. they quit their jobs, and they went off and worked for a few months and engineered this little gizmo called a Ranger XTD. Yeah, how, what the heck do you say X phonetically? Xavier? <laughs> uh, X-ray. X-ray, there you go. Ranger X-ray Tom Dick. Well, that sounded a little risque. Uh, Ranger XTD, okay? So this little gizmo, and they demonstrated it, and you can go to the website and see probably videos there. I, I hadn't watched it over on the website, but I did dial it up because it really interested me, and I think it may interest a lot of you, especially if you live outside the country. <laughs> uh, this little gizmo is about 40 or 50 bucks. I think they want 100 but there's some specials on it. And you plug it into uh, any outlet. And it bypasses the router and gives you the full strength of the provider. And it increases your speed, according to them, between six and eight times. And they show it on camera. So that may be a rangerxtd.com. RangerxraytomDorothy.com. Uh, anyway, I just thought that was interesting. I'd almost like to buy one and try it down here. So anyway, that uh, was one oh, of the yeah. things. Oh, yeah. You know, you... Uh... I'm glad, I'm glad. 
See there. I'm glad you brought it up, and I have that problem. When you go to a hotel or a motel, at certain hours of the night or in the morning or in the evening, the, the company somehow throttles it back to where they don't have to spend as much money giving you power and bandwidth. bandwidth. And so, yeah. Well, it could be, though, that these guys, uh, this is how cynical some people are, and that means me, these guys uh, are working in cahoots with the company to make more money. They figured they can make more money throttling things back and selling these gizmos. I don't know. I don't know. But uh, in, in either case, they're going to help, I guess. Well, I, I'll just go look at it. If it's something that, you know, find a need and fill it. If it has a found a need with you, you might want to go check yeah. it out. I'd love to get my well, hands on one. And like for you, in the instance, you're you're a traveling guy. You're always yeah. somewhere, okay? Uh-huh. And very rarely home. Uh, on, on, on the days that we get together anyway, and you can carry this with you and it plugs into any outlet and there's no setup, no nothing. It automatically adjusts everything. Yeah. So, well, I that was pretty if cool. You would please post that long, that long uh, set of letters and uh, whatever it's named. Yeah, it's, on in, the- it's in no, same thing. The name and the website are exactly the same. Ranger, okay. like like the Lone Ranger, rangerxtd.com. That's it. That's okay. it. Okay. He's got a little picture of one of them, a little cute little thing there on the top of the front page. So, Brent, how you doing? We've had a little bit of water under the bridge here. We were also talking before the show. We may launch out this way because it's certainly interesting on Jeff's hypothetical. Jeff, why don't you repeat your hypothetical to Brent and the audience? I went to my bank less than two weeks ago, and as usual, they insisted that I be served out of doors, outside. And so I was. Well, the last time I went in, I gave the manager who actually insisted I go outside, and then 10 minutes later brought out the money I was trying to withdraw. And so I handed her a legal notice that you can find at thehealthyamerican.org that lists the three different federal statutes relating to public accommodation, denial of participation, equal access. And I told her that, well, this you and this institution are violating federal law. She didn't have anything to say about that, so I left. So if I go back again, give them this again, maybe I'll video it. Would a U.S. national, as I am, and I am also a person. Can't hear. So when the federal law present, prevents so, <clears throat> their minions from violating any person's, quote unquote, rights, do I not have standing? What is the mechanism for getting into federal court where I can pursue them for violating my rights? Did you get that, Brent? It sounds like you're having a little trouble with your earbuds or something. Yeah, that's not. I plug them in. And, are, you, are you there, Roger? We're right here. Yeah, I, 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 everything's just gone dead on me, and I'm frustrated. To point I can of, repeat it. Of cussing out loud. Well, <laughs> um, I wouldn't be wouldn't be the first time. Wouldn't be the first time on this show. <laughs> Has a very strong Although, man. Brent, I do say that we try and really, really preserve a consciousness of the Carlin line. <laughs> the what? The Carlin line. 
You're oh, not aware. One? You're not aware of the Carlin line. You're talking about George. Yeah. Remember the eight things yeah, you absolutely, it, the eight words you absolutely cannot say on media. That was a long time ago. Oh, if you, if you have been words. but there's a list of words there, and we try and maintain that. When I was in the in the music business, it was referred to as the Carlin line, like the Maginot line, you know, that kind of thing. Well, I heard heard that story, and um, I heard him say that. He compiled federal statutes that said that a bank or in a place of business can't lawfully exclude people that way for not putting diapers on their head. I guess that's what it was about, although mm-hmm. I didn't hear that part. Yep. And everybody who talks now is, is very weak. I've got to figure out what's going on with jujitsu. As soon as I you're strong, plug in, plug, you're on plug the in receiving. major budget, goes weak on me. But you're, you're very strong on rate, listening. Brent, let uh, me ask you a question. How are you listening? Are you listening through the computer or are you using the cell phone with earbuds? Uh, computer. Okay. Well, make sure I tell you. Here's a, here's something you may try. Uh-huh. Is it you're plugged in with like a mini plug or or USB? Mini plug. Yeah. Okay. Take it out. Put uh-huh. some spit on it and put it back in there. Spit on it. Yep. Just a little bit. Just a little moisture. Did you say spit? Did you yeah. say spit on it? Just stick it in your mouth and get some moisture on there and stick it back in there. Oh. Okay. Uh- I mean, don't don't slobber like you know you're you're giving somebody a big kiss like Sue, but just put a little moisture on there. It helps the conductivity. That sounds like low tick old school. <laughs> There's Chris, our electrician. It's a poor man's way to get over that hump sometimes. Does that help, Brent? Damn, I didn't mean to like slobber on it. All you do is put a little moisture on it. Not like a big logie or something. Well, Maybe while just Brent, exhale on it. Uh, while Brent is uh, messing with that, always some technical crap in there. While Brent's messing with that, let me bring up, in addition to what you're talking about, Brent, that, I mean, uh, Jeff, there was a real egregious violation. Which, which of the wonderful bank Babylonian horse thieves do you use? Well, I don't deal with banks since 30 years. I've been a member of a credit union. Oh, okay. Well, uh, then that's a little bit of a different horse. But uh, Bank of America the other day had a request from uh, probably the FBI, and they ran. I guess you all have heard about this, but it's worth repeating. Um, They ran an entire search on their database of credit and debit cards to find out a couple of categories who'd uh, rented any uh, Airbnbs or hotels in the area, three states made any purchases, and had had bought any purchases at any store that sells firearms. And it was unsolicited except from the FBI, and they complied used to they had to have a summons for that sort of thing like the irs is forced to use summons for books and records because that's what i fought them on brent did you get any of that or you plug back in have we still got you are we gonna have to send you back to technical school i see him on the board oh man i just gonna get it i mean uh, this while you're uh waiting for brent you're bringing up a very interesting question there and that is called the cardinal rule when in doubt get a warrant 
You must get a warrant to force production of information, except that when you realize that all licensees of the federal government, banks and otherwise, are subject to, and therefore they must comply, although they used to go under the pretext that they didn't have to without going through the technical hurdles of getting a warrant or a summons or a subpoena. Yeah, I mean, the banks would roll over anyway. Okay, As I've said on here so many times, there's no company that's going to fight your IRS battle for you. There ain't one out there. Okay, Brent, have we got you back yet? Well, I'll just be darned. I have no idea what's going on on Brent's end. It ought to be a pretty simple matter. It sounds like it's one of the twin mini-plug uh, leads for headphones. You, you plug the audio and the video side in, and uh, it, that is pretty simple to unplug it. There he is. He's on again. We got two double Cs. Brent, do we have you this time? Yeah. Don't. Yeah, I'm here. Okay. All right. Yeah. Good. Well, if I if I drop, I'll just get off and get back on. That seemed to fix it. But somebody was talking about, well, of course, the fellow telling the story about the going into the credit union and all. You know, uh, and you were talking about production of book and record books and records, and and also Chris production of book and books and records is a big deal. But there's a, a 1974, I believe it was, Supreme Court case, U.S. versus Miller. I remember Miller was in the in the heading, and uh, the IRS had gone and taken, uh, told the bank they wanted his record. That's a long time ago. I used and that. I used that case uh, in my defense when I was fighting him on this. Well, I'm going to go a different direction. It may be a different case. This case said this is U.S. Supreme Court, and the U.S. Supreme Court said you have no privacy expectation once you uh, give information to a bank. You lose it all, and the government can take anything they want to take uh, information-wise, and the bank has to give it up to them because the bank is insured by the FDIC. And besides that, a bank is under a charter of a corporation, and then they're under the overarching over, um, um, charter of the Federal Reserve Bank with which they all do business, you know. Yeah. And so the, the government, or the, yeah, the U.S. Supreme Court said you have no expectation of privacy. And you, when they demand records, the bank has to give it to let them. Me, let, me, let me add to that. They've subsequently decided that when you give your money to them, it's the banks, too. Well, now, that's always been true. Uh, when you give money to a banker, uh, title passes to him. Title. That means legal title. That means ownership. He owns your money. <laughs> And he's under a contract to provide certain services, which means give it back. When people go into a bank and say, uh, I'd like to have my money, and no, it's my money. I know a fellow, you don't do that. Don't ever do that. I had a fellow, a client did that, and uh, he got really upset because they said, well, we're going to have to wait a couple of days. He said, no, it's my money. Well, see, number one, it wasn't his money. Uh, that's the. That's why, by the way, that is why, because... It's not your hand back. Well, first it's not of all, your money. Once you put it in, you transfer a title. And once you borrow money from the bank, it's the same thing. Holy. Title of that money. You're not borrowing it at all. Oh, That's right. not what it is. That's a misnomer. You're, they're transferring title and ownership to right. you, and then you transfer title and ownership to somebody else because you spend it on your house or your car or whatever it is you're buying. Uh, so... That's an important concept to understand, and once a fellow understands that, that's why 
suing a bank's a waste of time. If a bank steals your money, and I've had cases like that, if they steal your money and you sue them, all you're suing them on is contract. And it's no crime in America to break your promise. And that's what a contract is. They've broken their promise. And if they break their promise, you can sue them, but you won't get any. There's no crime you can accuse them of, of see, because it's a contract problem. Well, not a theft problem. Well, it's yeah, their money. Go ahead. And we've used the whole conversation, used the word money. It's not money. Yeah, good point, Roger. Everything is a ruse. You're right. And when we say borrow, we are not borrowing. When nope. they say loan, it is not a loan. They're transferring title and possession to you to, to uh, transfer it to somebody else. And proof of that is you do transfer title and possession to somebody else. And you couldn't have done that unless you had it. Go ahead. They're not loaning you money. You're loaning them your signature on a promissory note that's now negotiable paper. Uh, now, that's true, but doggone, Roger. See, you got your head so deep into this stuff. You start going off, and I assume you're going to lose people real quick. I know. <laughs> well, I hope not. Because I know all I'm, that stuff's true. But well, some just, of the newer, but we got some newer folks. Brent, you know, I did a pretty good interview on Deanna Spingola last week, and it's gotten us some traction. Yeah. Oh, and, you did? Yes. And good. I think I think the best one I've ever done, quite honestly. Oh. And well, I would on, encourage you, if you hadn't listened to it, I, I know I sent yeah. it to you to go back and listen to it. I, it's... Uh, I, what it is, is, you know, we've discussed this before you and I, uh, the Bible right. says above all, it doesn't seek, it doesn't say seek knowledge. It says seek understanding. And I've uh -huh. gotten to a point where I've immersed myself in this stuff for so long. I've got a total understanding of it and can flip it around and explain it much easier than I ever could. Okay. Mm -hmm. And that was evidenced by the response I've gotten from all week long from that. Interview. Well, where's your, where's your interview? Well, I sent it out in an email to you, but I'll resend it to you. It's posted oh. on uh, castbox.fm, and okay. I uh, posted it even though it was on Saturday. Of course, normally we don't have shows on the weekend, so I had two open dates. So I mm -hmm. put the Spingola interview on Sunday, the 7th of February, and I mm -hmm. put an about a year-and-a-half-old interview with our friend uh, Pastor Eli James going over the same info with not quite as uh, hard-hitting a a perspective in the front. In other words, it's just a lot easier now. I think I can get anybody's attention in just a few minutes. But regardless, that's getting us some new listeners, and, and you're right on your point. And what happens, just an overview, we've gone into this on previous shows in much more detail. I won't do it here because I want to mention something else, Brent, that we were touching on earlier. And uh, that is when you go in and sign, let's say you're going to buy a car. Are you going to pay for that cash, or are you going to do a financing? Well, i got to finance it. Well, okay, let's do the financing statement. That's actually a statute staple contract because it's got a recognizance on it. And uh, then that is a classified in commercial law as a promissory note. You're promised to pay that many payments that long. And it also becomes, I guess, at the same time, Brent, correct me if I'm wrong, it falls into a category of negotiable paper. Now, they take it over to the bank, and they put it on double-entry on double entry bookkeeping now. And this is what allowed them to pull this scam. They put it on the liability side of the ledger. you got two sides, assets and liabilities. They're supposed to balance. They put it on the liability side. Then they take and discount it into the secondary market to an investor and get back less than the total you're going to pay, and they bring that cash back and put it on the asset side, and that's what they pay the car dealer with. With. 
So you, they don't loan you anything. You own them and create an income stream called negotiable paper, and they work it, their magic on it. Now, Jefferson knew this because I read one of his quotes, Brent. He said, no discounting of notes. He understood it. I don't know how fully, but he certainly had a grasp on the central concept here. Well, I would uh, say that it is such a ruse. It's such a lie at every point. It's double speak, double books, that there is no understanding it. That's what I say. And so I say, I say, no, I believe that. I don't think there's, you can't make logical sense out of what you said. I know that you can follow the, the procedure they use, but it's not legal. It's not logical. It is a damnable lie that destroys countries and it has is. destroyed. Now, th to say that, that's why Jesus Christ said it's all, all what you described is usury, shuffling paper yep. Yep. till there's confusion and then I steal your money. Now, that's the best way to describe it. Yeah, it is. I all usury, all, I know you understand that, but you understand the detail of the procedure. But all usury is shuffling paper until it's confusion and you got to trust the other fella, and then they steal your money. Okay. And that's why the Bible says usury and the, is against the law, and in all of European, all the European world, maybe the rest of it, I don't know, but in the European world for centuries, it was called the scourge of all mankind, no. and it was against the law mm -hmm. in all the countries of Europe and in England. I followed that a little closer, but it was against the law. And it didn't, and the reason it was against the law, because they saw, as the Bible says, over and over and over, that that becomes the foundation of all evil. It yep. will destroy everything. Yep. Families, it, it, it introduce families. Uh, there's a lot of ways to destroy families, of course, but the evils that arise out of banking are what destroy everything. You know, it's funny to me, and I, I struggle with this too. I know usury is God hates it. And Jesus Christ reiterates that in the New Testament. That's what he did when he threw the money chambers, changers out of the temple. But even though all that's true, most all people who hate usury will put their money out to a bank so they can benefit from it a little bit. And, and the banks have such a lock to show you how important usury is to the evil empire, shuffling paper to steal money, to confuse and steal money, to show you how important it is to the foundation of the evil system. They've got it now, of course, in America. So you can't do business almost, almost, and can't do business at all unless you go to the banks. I grew up where there were Amishmen around, and uh, they weren't real close to us, but we'd end up doing They were horse traders, and, and uh, you get to know them through horse trading. You get to know them through buying milk and eggs and things like that. And I do remember they had a lot of money and have a lot of money, and they don't. the ones back in the older days, 40 years ago and beyond, never banked. And then the Mennonites that live close to them, people think the Mennonites came from the Amish. It's the other way around. The followers of Menno Simons, Menno Simons was his name, the Amish, as they say at home, they broke away and said, you fellows aren't, fun you aren't biblical enough, you aren't fundamental enough. Of course, the Amish are just, they're like the Pharisees at this point. They make up their own rules. The Bible doesn't matter that much. But they do have some fundamental ideas that are good, and getting away from banking is one of them. But it will destroy. Back to you, Roger. Have you ever heard Catherine Austin Fitz's red button story? 
No, I want to hear it. No. It's on. It? Yeah, she's got a very short excerpt on YouTube. She's up in front of a group of people. I don't know how many people in the room. And she says, uh-huh. okay, we can change all of this, but you're going to have to give up all your pensions, all your this, all your that, everything tied to it. And all you got to do is come up here and hit this red button. One person, okay. one person out of the room raise their hand. Uh-huh. Now, I wanted uh-huh. to say on a minute ago, we were talking about, you said that it's always been that it was their money, and that may be true. I don't know the history of that. I do understand that it's got to be, it can't be your property because your property and you can't own property. That's why it's a debt note, okay, technically. But what they did here a few years back is one of the ways that they've buttressed this system since 2000. Uh, was put in this instrument, another one of these ferrocyte instruments called the derivatives. Okay, you, and, and it's complex. I don't even claim to have a whole understanding of it, but I think I've got a conceptual understanding of it. And a derivative is a bet that's based upon another fact, like the sun's going to rise tomorrow. The interest rate of the 10-year note's going to go over or under some line whatever, and then you make a side bet on that, okay? And they started bringing these CBOs and all these, you saw these in acronyms, that's what these all were, were basically derivatives. And they used it like scaffolding to scaffold up from the underneath and help support the already collapsing system, okay? Now, one of the attributes of that, those derivatives, is it changes the creditor relationship, and it takes somebody that's got a derivative involved with, say, a bankrupt bank to go in and put themselves like the IRS does at the head of the line. And so should the bank fail, I've often tried to liken it to a, see- to a teeter-totter, a seesaw on the, on the playground, okay? And one end is down, the other end is up. Well, the end that's down is in the bank, and the guy on the other end has the creditor relationship on the derivative. And when the bank goes under, he gets all the weight, and all your money goes sliding down to him because he sits in the front of the line. Now, what you'll get is you'll get stock in a bankrupt bank because they got all of the assets. So that's something, and they did it the first time, and it's a new well, it's a new term in the legal lexicon that they brought in a few years ago called a bail-in. Not a bail-out, a bail-in. And all the derivative holders get to bail-in and get all the assets. Mm-hmm. So that's, a, that's another thing. And that's when they, they definitely changed that, that it's somebody, it's not your money, it's the banks. Uh, so they could set up that thing and facilitate what obviously is coming at some point. Um, so anyway, I don't mean to get off into that technical stuff, but it kind of revolved around Jeff's question of does a national have standing but, to bring a corporation oh. into federal court as a moving party? Oh, that, that was his final. Well, that's that kind of the synopsis of it, you know, his question. Oh, I now, think. wait, say that again. Say that again. Does a national have a standing bank. to a national br- bank? You mean a national Political status. Oh, a national someone, person. Oh, yeah, uh, someone, yeah. uh, let's put it bluntly, someone yeah. who's not a voluntary serf have the ability to be the moving party and bring in a corporation into federal district court. Are Anybody, they, any any breathing person yeah. has standing, if they're blooded and wronged, has standing to bring a an action in a federal court if they, number one, 
are from different states, different mm-hmm. domiciles from different sta- or different states, or number two, that the the uh, the wrong that was that the bank perpetrated against the person arises under the Constitution of the United States or the laws of the United States. Um, but the, given given that he was wronged, if it arises under the laws of the United States, or is a diversity problem, but it sounds to me like that uh, in this case that he described, the way I understood it, what I could hear of it, he was wrong because they wouldn't let him come inside like other people and do business. Now, what came to mind when he said that was a case from the U.S. Supreme Court, the U.S. Supreme Court called Heart of Atlanta Hotel. Heart of Atlanta Hotel was a hotel in the heart of Atlanta, Georgia, and a, a man or a family from from the new country up in the north driving down to see the kinfolk down in Georgia and went to say and they needed a place to stay and they went to the heart of Atlanta Hotel and their skin was too dark for the heart of Atlanta Hotel and they said we don't serve colored people here that's what they said and so they said well why not so then that was a rough deal that was a rough deal back in those days for people traveling. Oh. They couldn't go into restaurants. They had to carry their own food with them. I'd, I've talked to people that uh, were from New York or Chicago and, and driving south to see relatives, and they knew they couldn't stay anywhere, and they knew they couldn't eat in a restaurant, so they would carry sandwiches and boiled eggs and blankets. That's pretty rough. Well, the U.S. Supreme Court said, now, wait a minute. You threw your, your doors open to public. And if you throw your doors open to the public, that's an invitation to come and do business with us. And if you've done it to the public at large, you can't then discriminate. That's invidious. You can't do that. You can't say to a person, I don't like the color of your skin. I was talking to a fellow the other day. He was, uh, he looked like he was an Indian. And I didn't know, I got to talking to a young fellow, handsome fellow, smart fellow. I was doing business with him. And finally I said, uh, are you a tribesman? And he said, yes. I said, well, I couldn't tell whether you were white or Indian. He said, well, I'm Indian. And he said, but I'm white too. I said, is that right? He said, yeah, my mother is white and my father is Indian. He told me what the obscure, obscure tribe I'd never heard of it over in Montana. And I said, well, but uh, truth is your mother probably isn't white, really, is she? I mean, she probably has a... A lot of pigment in her skin, doesn't she? He said, yeah, matter of fact, she's not white, but but we just use those words. I said, I know you do, but they're inaccurate, aren't they? He said, yeah. To say black and white is just downright stupid, isn't it? Or, or red. Or, I looked at him. And one thing most Indians aren't is red. We call them red, but right. they aren't red. You know, it's just all this stupidity. I was in law school, and uh, we were going through those kind of cases and had a friend and a the professor said, let's go to the restaurant. Let's get something to eat and talk. And he was a nice fellow. And we all went over the ones that wanted to. And pretty near all of us went. And I was sitting talking to this fellow. And uh, I don't know how it came up in the conversation. He said, well, skin color, a uh, race. He said, race is a matter of skin color. I said, no, it isn't, Tim. I said, race is a matter of ancestry. He said, no, according to the courts, race is a matter of skin color. Now, this is an intelligent young man. We're still friends. 
and he's been a, well, he's, he's gotten along good in life, raised a big family and all. But he was of the opinion, that, no, he was the conviction that race had to do with the color of your skin. It doesn't. Race, race means root. It's a Latin word that, yeah, somebody just sent me a message that says black folks are either milk chocolate color or, and then coal black or something else. Yeah, that's true. Not, most of them aren't black, though, especially in America. And most white people, uh, the only white people you're going to find that are white are albinos. That's it. And even they have, aren't pure white. They have redness to their color, of course. Well, he was under the false impression. Well, if that's true, then it's anybody's guess who is a Negroid and who is a Caucasian. If I think your skin is black enough or dark enough or has enough pigment, I could call you anything I want. And I know, you know, Dan Webster, Daniel Webster, senator from New Hampshire, uh, Secretary of State at one time, and on and on. He was a proud Anglo-Saxon. He wrote about the Anglo-Saxon race and the attributes of the Anglo-Saxon race and how the Anglo-Saxon race had founded America and all the things they brought in the common law and all that was good. Nothing wrong with that. But the truth is, uh, his his nickname was Black Dan. And the reason his nickname was Black Dan because his skin was so dark. Dan Webster. So skin color is not the test for a person's race. What is the test? That your pedigree, your genealogy, who your ancestors are, that's the test. Yep. And losing sight of that fact has created a, a lot of confusion and dissension mm-hmm. in America. Well, Heart of Atlanta Hotel said once you throw your doors open, you can't discriminate on the basis of race. And by the way, if that's true, you can't discriminate a grocery store, a bank, whoever. You can't discriminate on the basis of religious conviction or on the basis of health problems. I can't wear a mask. It's against my religion to put a goofy-looking di- diaper on my head like the rest of you bozos that want to follow the pagan world. And that's what they're doing. They're following the evil religion of demons and uh, useful idiots of the evil empire telling them to block their breathing passages to deny the gift and the giver that gave them the gift of the breath of life. Deny them both. And to take the the great chance of compiling bacteria in a mask, which is what the medical profession has taught for decades, and getting bronchial pneumonia and who knows what else. Don't do it. Just say, I, I travel. And I just say to people, well, thank you very much for offering me a mask, and, and thank you very much for uh, telling me what you think, but I'm not going to do that. Now, I have some rare occasions. Rare occasions, it's, it's went into an altercation to where they would, one occasion, they wouldn't sell me gasoline. And I'll, I'll add something else to it. It's never been men. It's always been young uh, girls that are adamant in hotels and and gas stations about yes. not yeah and the reason they that they just want to do what they're told and they've got some yep. pervert who's a left-wing wacko running the place and they're afraid they'll lose their job and they get nasty about it i've had that happen twice twice in the last year not many i think you're but, right i've ahead. had it with young women down here yeah. same thing yeah. almost not overridingly yet. um uh-huh. I, the other day i got into a taxi and the gal says will you wear your mascara and i said no 
And uh-huh. she kind of looked at me and I said, this is Mianthra. So I started telling her it's a lie. And we had a wonderful yeah. conversation. <laughs> her well, taking good. Me over. Yeah. Uh, listen, I got curious, uh, a big curious there when you were talking about my old stomping grounds, Heart of Atlanta Hotel. And you didn't give a year in that, so rather than interrupt, nope. I actually looked it up. Yeah, 1964. Oh, okay. So this is right before the Civil Rights Act. Um, yeah. You'll also remember there was a mayor in Atlanta down there. Some of you uh-huh. guys, uh, uh, w- uh, uh, what Alan? Who? What was? Uh, what was the? Not the mayor, the governor that owned Pickwick Restaurants. You know about that? That guy, uh-huh. uh, Les uh, Leb. Oh, gosh, what was his name? Uh, he rode a bicycle around Maddox. backwards. Pardon me? Maddox. Yeah, Lester Maddox. Thank you. And you know about him, Brent? It's no, about the no. same time Lester Maddox was, and he really he, he really liked black people, but he was a segregationist. And the interstate case that went to the Supreme Court on interstate commerce came out of his restaurant's and the product from Louisiana called Tabasco. Oh, that was before uh-huh. he got uh, into into politics. But yeah, he's a famous, uh, pretty pretty well respected governor down there by whites and blacks. By the way, uh, in that time frame, another well, he he agreed past. with uh, Cassius Clay later to call himself Muhammad Ali. He uh, and also Malcolm X. Malcolm X, a wonderful writer. He's a good writer and. I'm not Islamicist like he was, and but Malcolm X was a smart man, and his brain worked very well, and he was uh, good with words, and he made the point the black man's never gonna, never gonna get himself up out of the ditch he's in, and if he keeps dependent upon Whitey, and uh, he said we must, we must band together, keep, keep our, ourselves together, help each other. And uh, the white folk can do what they want. We don't need to go to war with them. We just need to, as the world is, we need to compete as black men and form our own communities. Now, I'm not taking a position one way or the other. I'm just making the point. That's not a white thing. That's a black thing. I'm, uh, that's a, see, here I am saying black. They aren't black men. Uh, I knew a fellow out in South Central Los Angeles, and he was a preacher. And he was a well-known preacher. He used to run around with Jerry Falwell and all that crowd back in the days they had the moral majority. And I don't, I don't promote that either. But I'm just saying he, he was in the main. He was a right-headed fella. He's passed away now. His name was E.V. Hill. And he pastored the Missionary Baptist Church in South L.A., a rough community. And uh, he made the point. He told me this personally one time. He said... Uh, Personally, I mean, he said it to me, right to my face. He said, "I don't call me a, a black man." He said, "I'm a Negro," and I reject the whole idea of calling me black. The truth is, he said, and he was true. You could tell looking at him, he was part German <laughs> because he was from the German Belt down in South Texas, runs clear down to South Texas, and that's where he grew up. And by the way, he grew up in a community down there. Uh, now, this makes the point. After the war between the northern and the southern tiers of the states, his ancestors, going back to his granddad, packed up and left the south. I don't know whether it was Alabama, probably, where he was from, or maybe it was Mississippi, his family. And they all moved the whole town where he lived, little village, kind of a town, little village town kind of a thing, 
of what he calls Negro peoples moved to Texas, and there wasn't much in Texas, and they found a place called Sweet Home, which wasn't far from where LBJ was from. And they formed an agricultural community. And by the time he came along in the 1930s, he said when he was a boy that they were voted the most progressive Negro farming community in the world. And he said, we really, we went to raising peanuts and we had peanut shakers. And he said, we had everything we need. We butchered hogs in the, in the fall. And he said, we all helped each other and we got along great. And we got along great with the, the sheriff in the county who was white, of course. And we got along great with everybody. And we had a lot. But we kind of stuck to ourselves. He said, I'm not saying we have to do that. But he said, I'm just making the point. I heard him make a presentation about where he grew up and how well it worked one time. He wasn't a segregationist. I went to church there one time with about half a dozen other young men. I was in my 20s. and A big church. And we found ourselves sitting in the middle of what looked to me like a sea of blackness. All I saw was dark faces. And this white boy sitting here in the middle. And, of course, he'd preach for about three or four hours at a time, and uh, he got an hour or so into his presentation. And it's a different experience than going to a church with white folk, of course. And he stopped and he says, there are white folk in this congregation somewhere. And he said, they're all sitting together. We do not allow discrimination in this church. And he ordered the ushers to come and get us by the arms and drag us around and scatter us over the the sea of the congregation <laughs> <laughs> and uh and i have that that community was so rough back then in south central that's where they had the riots down there by watch you know but he he the, the ushers stood in the aisles during the service in uniform and white gloves at parade rest because so many winos and drug addicts would wander in off the streets and disrupt uh, so they had their own security in the building but, uh, yeah, he was a, he was quite a character. He's gone now. And, uh, the, the influence that he had in his community was powerful and it was right headed. He, he, he saw that the black man or the, I see there I am saying it again. This is politically correct speech. What he called the Negro man and the Negro woman needed to learn to rely on each other and not upon whitey. God doesn't want anybody to rely on anybody as a matter of fact reliance is by definition trust trust is faith all these words are synonyms and god said trust no man don't even trust yourself you're a fool if you do that he says that's why our national motto says trust in god and god alone and not in man or the arm of the flesh we are to be loyal to those of like kindred mind and spirit but we are not to trust even our friends, even our spouses. Uh, trust is for God alone. Loyalty is for God's people, like kindred spirits born of, from above. These are fundamental concepts that are important, overarching, and are utterly ignored. And that's why we have the trouble we have as God's people, because we're allowing ourselves to talk wrong. That's why I say, I talk wrong. I find myself talking like people around me talk. And God said, no, you use words the way I want you to use them. And like Evie Hill said, I'm not a black man. I'm a Negro man. You're a Caucasian. I'm a Negro. 
I don't call you white, I call you Caucasian. That's what he said to me. You're not white anyway, and it's, of course that's true. I'm some shades of something, but it's not black or white. Well, uh, back to you, Roger. I've A lot of things when you're talking, I get so many thoughts that flash through my mind, and one of the things when people start talking like that is I revert back to uh, you know, nature. And uh, if you look over in the great wilds, I mean, you don't see the zebras going over and hanging out with the wildebeests. <laughs> okay. I mean, the zebras well, hang with the zebras yeah. and the wildebeests hang with the wildebeests and all the different baboons. They're off in their little tribes and there, there uh, is separation in nature. Yes, no, there is. And I, I like to be with my mother and father. I like to be with my brothers and the kinfolk I grew up with. Why? Not because I'm against other people. They understand me and I understand them. And it's a time I can be myself and not worry about trying to put on airs or worry about them taking advantage of me if I know them well enough. And you say, oh, well, you're trusting them. No, no, no. I'm trusting God that he will use them in my life the way he wants to use them. And I'm trusting God that he will not allow me to hurt myself. I'm trusting him. Not that, That's what we need to do. You say, well, I'm trying to. But the point I'm making is, we do. Birds of a feather flock together. I was uh, recently in a place. I was out in the hallway. And, uh, I ran into a fellow with a mask. That's not hard to do these days. And he was holding the door for me. And I knew And I knew that he was, uh, and he, I, could, I figured, looking at him, he looked like he was Mexican. And I'm in a place where there are a few of them. And I thanked him profusely and he he got to talking to me asked me if he could help me i said no he was a young fella and i said no i got it i got it and i knew he was with a group of men that were working for the utility company and so i said are you a lineman and he said something i couldn't understand him and then i said are you a? are you what, what do you do are you uh are you trimming the brush and he said something i couldn't understand him i said look Take that blasted diaper off your head. I said it nicely so I can talk to you. That's stupid. And so he pulled it down. We're standing in the hall by ourselves. And he said, I got to be careful. I said, well, of course, I could understand him then. I said, why is that? He said, if any of us are ever seen without this mask on our faces, we are fired on the spot working for a public utility company. I won't tell you which one. And they were the fellows that had the chainsaws and were trimming, you know, so the brush wouldn't grow into the utility lines and all that. They're hardworking men. And I know how hard work that is. I've done a little bit of it. That's We're talking down dirty, ugly, scratch and mosquitoes. and I, It's terrible work. Well, they're working hard. They're getting paid well. Getting paid well, but it's hard work. Yep. Well, he, he is hanging. All of his buddies, I saw them out there. They get out in the morning and get ready to go. All these Mexicans together talking Mex or Spanish, whichever you like to call it, because they're comfortable with each other. That doesn't mean he didn't want to take time. And he stopped, talked to me, and, and finally I, I said, you know, this is all a lie. You, do you know that? He said, I know it. He said, what I, and this is what he said to me. I'm quoting. Once I said, this is all a lie, he said, I know. I, I do it for my job, and I trust God. He said that to really? me. Really? I don't know what he meant by that. I don't, I don't know why he didn't we'd expound on it, but that was a that was a stabbing statement. I said, I do too. And I said, the rest of this doesn't matter much because in the end, God's going to crush like greasy little stink bugs all the useful idiots of the evil empire. It's going to happen, whether I like it or not. In some, in some cases, I won't like it because it's going to be people that I know. And 
he exchanged a few more kind words with me and, and we parted. But he understands his own kinds. He speaks their tongue. That's big right there. He stays with them, but he isn't hesitant to be kind to me. And I felt the same way about him. You know, there's something to that, Roger. You know, some people call it kinsism, kinsism. And there is a movement among uh, Christodom, D-U-M-B, that kinsism is wrong. No, kinsism is what we are. That's the way God made us. God made us to gravitate to those with whom we are familiar in culture and in other ways, too. And uh, it go culture, by the way, in a big way, goes with your roots. Remember, race oh. is the Latin oh. word for root. It goes with your roots. Go ahead, Roger. The difference in cultures between Ecuador and Argentina is stark, uh -huh. stark. Start. Well, I'm going to I'm going to make a guess, and then you tell me if I'm right. In Argentina, they're more European, and in Ecuador, they're more native South American. That's kind of thing. pretty much it in a nutshell. Yeah. Oh, okay. okay. Uh, here's the difference: I could go to Argentina not speaking ten words of Spanish, and uh -huh. I could get along because I looked like them. And and you had told me there, Argentina is more European than Europe. Now, since all the, especially since the immigration stuff over the last number of years and they stopped them they tried to get them into argentina but i think either they didn't let very many in or they stopped it and uh, -huh. uh yeah fascinating place argentina i've got fond memories of the time i spent down there it was a wonderful uh -huh. experience i feel felt like i really grew as a person which is as i get older my personal barometer what does what kind of personal growth does something put you through yeah. Okay. What kind of, oh, yeah, yeah, I see what you're saying. How right? much personal oh, growth do you go through from an experience? Oh, oh yeah. Okay. And you can't go through life pretty much. I seldom meet people that are over 60 that haven't been through some tough experiences that yeah. have, when you say growth, you mean maturity, getting rid of the things that don't matter, that kind of thing. With all that and, you know, the old, the, the, the little cliche that came out, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Mm-hmm. No, I see it clearly, and I I have friends now that are going through some of the toughest. I, I have a friend right now that's going through. He's a he's just over seventy, and he's always been exceedingly healthy. He has always looked exceedingly healthy, and he developed a, a thing on his cheek bone or on his skin above uh, his cheekbone melanoma. And it, well, and now it's into his bone, and now the doctors are going to tell him they've got to remove his cheekbone yeah. and his eye, yeah. and uh, they're going to take skin from his leg, and just he's not going to have an eye or a cheekbone, just have skin there. And uh, I said, do you feel like you're one of the Hebrew boys going through the furnace? He said, yeah, I do. And then, you know, the emperor threw him in the, in the furnace, tried to kill him. And uh, he said, yeah, I do. He's keeping up pretty good. But that's just one example. I know other people are going that's through right. times that are just as tough in its own way and have known people, mm -hmm. and we, mm -hmm. most of us have. In this world, said the Savior himself, in this world you will have trouble. Count on it. Yep. But he said, don't be discouraged. He said, mm -hmm. because I, I, me personally, have overcome this world order i have overcome it well you're always stronger on the other side you don't realize yep. it at the yep. time 
But uh, yep. let me. So you're as strong. Gotta, you're as strong as what you trust in. Go ahead. We got a nice board of folks here with us. They always like the Friday show. Does anybody have anything to add or any questions to poll either one of us or any observations? Now's your time. See there, Brent. We're covering everything, and everybody <laughs> understands perfectly. Oh, we must be, sure. We're this really this good. Crowd. <laughs> we're really good, Brent. You know. Well, that may help. <laughs> don't bump us up. Don't bump us up too much, Roger. Listen, pride, pride, <laughs> going for a fall. It's better let another man uh, praise you than your own lips, says the Bible. I was being. I want to bring up. I was oh, being that? facetious. I know we are. I'm, but just in case anybody misunderstood, I want to say that I was reminded of a story, and I want to tell this story. It's a true story from history. It really happened, and the evidence for it, the truth of it is overwhelming. So I tell it as a, an object lesson, and that's what it was meant for. And when it was told, it was about a nation called Israel. And uh, they were at war with the Midianites. And they, the, Mid, the Midianites, uh, was it the Midianites? What well, does it make who it is? That's not, it was the Midianites. Okay, so they... They went out to war, and uh, the Midianites, they arrayed themselves, as the Bible would put it, in battle. And the Midianites slaughtered 4,000 men. Now, that's a big slaughter right there, 4,000, but it gets worse. So they panicked. They went back to camp. They retreated to camp, and they, the war council got together, of the older men, and they said, what's going on here? Where's God? Where is our God? And somebody said, hey, I know what the problem is. We got a box over here. It's a box, and it's called the Ark of the Covenant. That's the God box. If we bring the God box over here and then go to battle, we'll win. That's what I think. And they all agreed that'd be the thing to do. And uh, somebody said, this is how stupid people can be, how, how stupid sin can make people. God is not a genie that you're in a bottle. That you rub the bottle, and he comes out. He's not in a box. And the, the box was the Ark of the Covenant. That's what the Ark of the Testimony. The Ark, better, better put, the Ark of the Evidence. And this is what they didn't get, apparently, the simplicity of it. That, that, ar that box was so constructed so that it was a, it was a capacitor. It was a Leiden jar. Leiden jar, which was the early name for a battery. It collected a static electricity. It was a container overlaid in and out with a hedge wood, what I'd call hedge, real heart-tight grain wood, but overlaid inside and out, pure gold. Well, if you take a jar of a glass or wood or any container, overlay it inside and out with a conductible material, copper, gold, silver, even aluminum, it'll collect static electricity, and the better the conductor, the, better, the more it will collect the electricity, and that's why God said, don't touch it, because if you touch it, he said, you're, you're dead man. So it, it got this strong box. It was so strong. It was constructed in such a way that nobody could get into it. And why was it so important? But not only that, it was placed in a place called the Holy of Holies, which is the superlative Hebrew phrase. It just repeat the word twice and in the plural the second time. What that means is unmatchably set apart. Unmatchably. It's not comparative, not, not set apart more than anything else, but set apart unmatchably. So it's set in this room that nobody was allowed to go in except the highest priest once a year, and they'd even tie a, a rope on his leg when he went in there on the day of Yom Kippur, that Yom, day Kippur, atonement, Yom Kippur, day of atonement, he'd go in there. And they tied a rope on his leg, and they put bells, little bells on his coat, so if they heard the bell stop tinkling, they knew that God had killed him. He was dumb enough to touch the thing. And they got this 
rope on his leg because they said, what if he dies? Who's going to go in there and get him? So they figured they'd drag him out. Well, fortunately, we don't have record of that ever happening, but it was in this holy place, set apart special, Kadosh in the Hebrew, and then outside the the most, the, the uncomparably, unmatchably holy place is the holy place. They got the unmatchable holy place set apart, and then the holy place, nobody went in there either except certain people. And then outside that was the court. The court, it was surrounded by a barrier that no, only certain people were allowed into that. And then outside of that were the militia of the 12 tribes of Israel in formation, encamped with their banners all around that courtyard. And when that courtyard was moved, they packed it up. The, the priest put it on poles, put that ark on poles because they, they couldn't touch it. They'd die. And they picked up the whole caboodle up and the militia of the 12 several tribes, which amounted to over 600,000 armed men, marched with that thing. That's how protected that box was protected. Why was it so protected? Was it, did it contain God? No. Did God meet the high priest there once a year, he said he did, but it, did, it wasn't his throne, as some people say. Well, what was it? It was a strong box of evidence. The Bible calls it, in the old translations, calls it the Ark of the Testimony. Well, testimony is an old word for evidence. They used to say witness. The Ark of Witness is sometimes called. Well, what was the evidence that was in it? It was evidence is protected. Well, there was the book of Deuteronomy, which is the land deed for Israel. The, the proof of their ownership of the land of Canaan. There was the pot of manna, a proof of God's sustenance, sustenance from the sky, uh, even when you don't work for it. And then there was the rod of Aaron that budded, proving the evidence, proving that God is the author and the source of all life. He can bring life out of dead things. Those were the, some of the things in there. And that is the evidences that, that uh, Israel were to rely upon for their rights in land, fundamentally rights in land. That's what it all came to, and their ability to sustain those rights. That's the pot of manna and the rod of Aaron. So the most protected thing that God gives us, the most protected thing that God gives us is his evidences. His evidences. And with those, and we are to do nothing. I forget what the fellow's name was. He invented the modern computer, but he's the one that said, He's the one that said only a fool would ever do anything except on sufficient evidence. Only a fool would ever do anything except on sufficient evidence. Now, God has so wired me and you, all men, that they live their lives moment by moment, millisecond by millisecond upon evidence. We don't stop to consider it because it's such a part of who we are that everything we do, I don't sit down in a chair unless there's some evidence that that chair will hold me. I don't think about it because I'm so used to looking at a chair and I know the liability of those that make chairs is great. And I know a lot of things as part of my consciousness and now I just sit in the chair. However, I have sat in chairs that have fallen down too. And so that gives me a little bit of pause and I'll watch. When I get in my car, used to had keys, I'd turn the ignition. I didn't stop to check the battery because I'd been doing it so much. I had, I had evidence that my car was going to start. I get up in the morning before daylight. I have confidence because God said, and all experience has shown me over the past decades, that the sun's going to come up. There's plenty of evidence. Evidence, evidence, evidence. Everything we do is about evidence. Evidence is what governs our lives according to our maker. 
and he wants us to have sufficient evidence. But they thought that box was a jar or a lamp a genie was in. And they went out with it. Oh, the ark is here and we're going to win. They went up against the Midianites. And how many did the Midianites slaughter that day? About 30,000 Israelites. That's a massive slaughter. It gets worse. It gets worse. The stupidity of thinking that God is in a box like the Ark of the Covenant, not understanding that God does not allow idol worship. He doesn't allow specialness to things. But he does say this, that evidence is in there is what I want you to rely upon. The evidence we have in our courthouses in America, where I'm from, every old courthouse, that's changing some now because of computers, but in our old courthouse at home, we've got a room right in the center of that old courthouse. It's surrounded by steel. It has steel doors. It's not very big. It's a small county. I can go in there and find the final evidences, according to our common law and our common law tradition, the final evidences of land rights, and that includes oil, gas, mineral rights, coal, of farming rights, land rights, and then the pedigree of everybody that's born in that county, who their parents are. And that has to do with land rights, you see. Pedigree is something that has to do with land rights. That's why they're all together. And death, records of death and birth, which also have to do with land rights. Everything comes back to the land. That's the way it was with the Ark of the Covenant. And all of that evidence that we have, Roger, this comes back to you. And this is what I was thinking this morning and what you do. You want people, you don't want people, you, you want to teach people to make out an affidavit and file it. No, no, that's incorrect. Well, well, well I'll teach well, people well, that. Correct me, say it rightly so okay. I get it right. I want to present to people that they've got a choice that they didn't know they had. Now, whether they want to follow through on that for whatever reason okay. is not my decision okay. and the reason for is because if and when you do do that, you're moving yeah. back under God's laws and the common law, and it's not my place to tell you to do that. Okay, let me back up. You teach people that they can do that, and you teach them that they can file this piece of paper, and this piece of paper, however, is not the reality. This piece of paper is the evidence of the reality. It's the docu it's your It's your diploma is what I call it. Yeah. Well, that, again, is evidence. The diploma is evidence of a course of study having been completed. And the same thing is true of the Bible, of the book of Deuteronomy that was in the Ark of the Covenant. That is what we would call with the Bible, for instance, we'd said for centuries, uh, Christendom, D-O-M, that the Bible is the best evidence of what God has said. It's the best evidence. The best evidence rule of our common law bears that out as well. We call it the best evidence rule. But that is not the reality. The, reality, the Bible is not the Word of God. The Bible is the best evidence we have. It's the evidence that God has preserved for us. And that can be shown with evidence, too. But coming back to the reality of it, is the paperwork important? Is the Bible important, the written record, the evidence we have of it written on paper? Yes. We, we, God has made it so that that's what we must have. And coming back to the, the affidavit that you teach about, same thing. Is that important? Yeah, it's important. You need that. But even though you have that, even though you have a Bible set, and we used to say, even though you have a Bible on top of the television set, people don't have television sets anymore. You go to homes all over America, millions of Bibles on top of television sets, and if you pick them up, you'd have to dust the dust off of them. Yep. 
That's the evidence. That's yeah. not the reality. Right. Even if you have the paperwork done, people say to me, Roger, I need to get you papered up. Well, I know what they mean when they say that, but papering somebody up, getting the paper in, doesn't bring the but, enjoyment of the reality. And this, you have to do that yourself. It doesn't. But bring, you have to, you have to get the evidence in place. You have to recognize the evidence. Go ahead. It doesn't bring change either. You know, I like to look at things as opposites, as dialectics, because it gives you the other side. Uh -huh. Now I could, and I maintained for a long time that if I would have done it, this I probably have more students, really. But I uh -huh. could say, listen. This is all very complex, and it's all mystical, and you have to have the special knowledge. And if you'll send me $1,000, I'll send you the magic paperwork. Okay. Mm -hmm. So what, what are people going to do? They're going to get the paperwork. They're never going to read a sentence. They're going to file it, and nothing's right. going to change because their thinking hasn't changed. That's right. You've That's got right. to Another get the education point, right? yeah. because the empowerment and any change that's going to be substantive, that's where it comes from. It doesn't come from sending a piece of paper to the Secretary of State. No. So having a piece of paper, having a Bible, filing a piece of paper, having the Ark of the Covenant is not the reality and nothing will change. The only thing that will change the mind of man and his point of view is to bury his head, as the Bible says, in musing, in chewing the Bible like cud. You've got to get the Word of God in mental sod, and there's not going to be a change. Having a Bible doesn't change it. Well, the evidences are there, and God makes us. He knows everything. He doesn't need evidences. He's made us, so we have to have evidences. That's why we have trials and jury trials, and that's why we re rely on and we make decisions based upon the gathered knowledge we have. That's the way God made us, and he insists that we rely on the evidence. And as a matter of fact, the word in the Newer Testament and the Older Testament, both of them, the Hebrew word and the Greek word, pistis in the Newer Testament, amen, amen in the Older Testament, the root word, mean to rely on evidence. We, we translate them faith. That's a weak word. I like to translate trust, but even better yet, reliance on evidence is exactly what those words mean. And if you're not relying, if you're just saying, oh, I just believe in Jesus, that's silliness, utter silliness. No, you don't just believe in Jesus. You trust the evidences that he has given you. He says to the, the Pharisees of his day, he says, if a man, if I were to raise a man from the dead, or if a man were to come back from the dead and tell you what I'm telling you, you wouldn't believe him. Yeah, right. Miracles, miracles don't make any difference to people that aren't persuadable. He said, if you will not rely upon the what upon the prophet, the, the scriptures, the sign of the prophet Jonah. Jonah is a prophet, wrote a book of the Older Testament. He wrote it. It was written about him, at least. We know it's there. He said, if you're not going to rely on that, what the evidence of what I have said, nothing will change for you. You're going to continue in your evil. You've chosen not to do that. You've substituted the tradition of the elders, which is now called the Talmud and the Mishnah, for the word of God itself and the law of God itself. You're still in your sins, and you're still bound for hell. That's what he said to them. Now, I can take what he said and the record that he substantiates to be true, or I can take to be true what these other people out here, these religionists, have, are telling me that none of that is true. No, I think the evidence is pretty strong. Matter of fact, it's overwhelmingly strong that what Jesus Christ said is true.
Absolutely. You, no, it's absolutely correct. And one of the things I do here, and one of the reasons I like to have you on Friday is you button all this up and you button it up in a way that I can't do it. And because I don't have the knowledge you do in that area. But what I try and do in the in the legal and the political stuff you can always trace it back to there. So I, I, I've come over the years to find out where the important touchstones are so you can take that principle the way it's manifested in our lives, society, and culture and tie it back to that. And then that helps to spurn the spiritual frame, f- flame in people that are attracted to the message. Okay. Now there's people that aren't attracted Uh-oh. to my message, and I put it in front of them, and their, their response is, i got to learn all that stuff? Well, you know, then first of all, as I'm thinking that through, then you're not a truth seeker because that's where the truth is. And if you don't want to learn and take the time to learn the truth, then you're really not in our game. Okay. And, that's right. And, and, and the, the other overriding thing I've seen usually, you know, Brent, is that people that the message doesn't take with, you know, like your polio vaccine, the ones that it doesn't take with don't have a spiritual base in their lives. Well, it's been my experience for what it's worth as uh, life goes on. I see where I fit and I see where other people fit. And one of the hard things for me and where I, I see I fit some is that I don't get to live the Christian life the way other people do. Uh, in other words, uh, I do spend a lot of time in the Bible, a lot of time, just doing all sorts of things. And other people, though, are the ones that get to live it to the fuller extent, it seems to me, because they get to take the principles and actually get out and do them. And that's what I long to do, is do more of what the Bible says to do and live it out. Uh, But that's not always what I get to do. Other people are looser, looser. No, they've been turned loose to do that. So, and that's the important thing. That's the important thing. If I talk about the Bible and I talk about first principles of law and truth, um, then somebody else comes along and says, like you, Roger, and says, well, I see how that fits over here. And the, that, that warning of Jesus Christ fits over here uh, in respect to banking. And you understand all the intricacies of how negotiable paper works and all that. Well, that's, that's where the rubber hits the road. And that's where things happen. And other people that are listening, they bring their consciousness, what we call the conscience. What is the conscience? The conscience, and everyone has one, and everyone's different. Con means with. Con's a Latin, Latin preposition. And science, science, well, we've taken that word, that Latin word in the English, but it is the Latin's word for knowledge. That's all, nothing fancy, just knowledge. Conscience, conscience, is my gathered knowledge over in my life, what I've gathered, and the conclusions I've come to, and you take the truth of God and in a way that's unique. That means there's not anything else like it. You apply it to your specific circumstances that nobody else has in a way that I'll never understand. And that's what you must do. And we can enjoy life. And we will enjoy life as we do that. We will not enjoy it. We will be restless, as Augustine says, restless until we find our rest in him and what he has said. Is what he has said the evidence of what he has said. And we have the best evidence. But he wants us to play it out, to exercise discernment. That means 
to make choices of right and wrong in individual instances. He's given us that jurisdiction here and now, and that's what we're to do in these evil, 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 evil times of this old world. Ooh, boy, but, aren't they. I'll tell you one thing this has done for me, though, that I've come to realize over the years, Brent, that's real important. It's given uh-huh. my life a purpose that I never had in life before. In other words, going out, I've done a lot of cool things in this life, you know, the record business and hanging out with the most famous people in the world and all that mm-hmm. stuff, okay? But those were actions, and they were enjoyable, but they weren't purposeful, okay? This gives my life purpose. When I get back an email from somebody here in the last week that I've sent that document to, and they go, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you for everything you're doing, that is reward that money can buy you can't buy that feedback okay no that's true that's right there's a purpose again coming back to conscience and i have a conscience i know some a conscience of course and that means my gathered knowledge and understanding from my unique circumstances everyone has that there are people that are listening i run into people that are dutch reformed dutch reformed in other words they're of dutch descent and therefore they came to america and they're in what we call reformed communities reformed or the there were two two major groups in the reformation of the church and back in the 14 and 1500s and into the 1600s there were the reformed groups and there were the lutheran groups the lutheran groups followed the teachings of martin luther and some of those fundamentalist groups still do and we have them here in america the missouri synod and the wisconsin synod and others but they were different because luther broke with the reformed tradition the Reformation was all one, and then it broke because Martin Luther uh, couldn't separate himself. As a great guy, Martin Luther and did wonders for <laughs> God used him, I should say, to do wonders for who we we wouldn't be here without Martin Luther. But Luther couldn't get away from transubstantiation. He tried and tried, and finally, his contemporary and a fellow speaker of the German tongue in Switzerland. The Swiss or the German speaking part of Switzerland, the leader of the Reformation in Switzerland was a fellow named Ulrich Zwingli. He was the last of 11 boys in a family, and they were goat herders, and he became a Romanist priest, which means he was a lawyer of the law of the city, the canon laws of Rome, the Code of Justinian of the Roman Empire. That's what a Roman priest is. But then all of a sudden, I don't know how it happened to him, but he said, wait a minute. The Pope's not the final authority. The Word of God's the final authority, the Bible. And he went and took the Bible. He went to the Munster, the Munster Church in, not Zurich, but, uh, yeah, Zurich, in Zurich, Old Town Zurich. I've been to that church, huge building, but a huge. And when I say huge, I mean a few city blocks, the way I remember it. But he got up in the pulpit, which had no no uh, emphasis in the Roman church. The center of the Roman church is the mass, not the preaching of the word of God, but the, the, the sacrifice, not the Lord's table. That's Protestant. We don't, we don't, we say that's not a sacrifice, but uh, they say the mass becomes the center. Well, they built a pulpit. He got up in the pulpit and he got in the book of Matthew and he began to teach through the Greek text, expounding, unpacking what God said in the gospel of Matthew And the church was so filled with people, they were standing out in the streets, they wanted to hear what God said and hear it explained. Well, he got in, got had a meeting with Martin Luther because they were both had, they didn't break from the Church of Rome, the Church of Rome threw them out. That's a misnomer to say they broke with Rome, that that isn't it. Well, Luther and Zwingli 
they couldn't come to terms over the Lord's Supper. Zwingli said these are symbols. The bread and the wine are symbols. And Martin said, no, no, no. He said, I won't go as far as transubstantiation to say they are the body and blood of Jesus Christ. But he said, after they mumble those words, hocus pocus, hocus corpus meus, no, no, I don't say that, but I do say that the presence of the body and blood of Jesus Christ are in, through, around, and under these elements, the bread and the wine. And they, he called that consubstantiation. Con means with, see? So with, the, 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 the body and blood of Jesus Christ are with the bread and the wine in a real way. Really, they really are, he said. And the Rome said, no, they are the body and blood of Jesus Christ. The Lutherans say the body and blood of Jesus Christ are with the bread and wine. And Zwingli said, that's silly, boys. This is bread and wine. They are symbols of the body and blood of Jesus Christ. And I think that's easy to show in the Bible, contrary to what they say. Well, that really upset Martin, and they broke. So then the Lutheran, or the Lutheran, the, the, there was the Lutherans, and then there was the Reformed tradition. The Reformed tradition uh, overcame Scotland, and it overcame England, namely the Puritans of England, which were Anglicans, and the Presbyterians of Scotland. And they are reformed. And then the Dutch reformed and the German reformed. Well, that, the reason I'm saying all that, my consciousness comes out of the reformed tradition. And so there are, two, there are two, great, two great creeds of the reformed tradition. They aren't the Bible, but they were statements of what people believe made sense of the Bible. One of them is the Heidelberg Confession of the Dutch Reformed Church. And the other one is the the Westminster Minster Confession of the Puritan and the Baptist, the, uh, the Calvinist Baptist of England, and the, mostly the Scotch Presbyterians. And that's what I'm familiar with. Now, I told you all that story just to say this is part of something I know about. The Scotch-Irish Presbyterians brought to America the Westminster Confession, which was a request of Parliament of all the the, the clergy, the men of the cloth of Scotland and England to come to Westminster and answer a series of questions that Parliament, after the English Revolution, they said well, the Parliament is sovereign, not the king, and therefore we need advice from you you preacher boys. Tell us so we don't have uh, pass legislation that runs afoul of the Bible. And they presented them with a series of questions. And these men spent a long time there hammering out the answers to the questions Parliament gave them. And they formed that then, those answers, they formed that later into what we call the Westminster Confession of Faith, which also uh, has with it a catechism, a teaching tool to teach what these fellows got together and said. And I've never seen, the Heidelberg Confession is good, of course, too, but I'm not as familiar with it as I am the Westminster. And the Westminster Confession, I've never seen a document that grasps the fundamental doctrines of the Bible and puts them forth any better than the Westminster Confession. Okay, the Catechism, and here's where I'm driving at. The Catechism of the Westminster Catechism, they call it, has one question. And then after that is a series of over 160 questions that expound further the, the first question asked in very organized fashion. Catechism means you ask a question, the student learns the answer to the question. That's the old... Uh, Greeks called that to catechize. It means to just learn the answers to questions. The first overarching question of the Westminster Confession is this. 
and you mentioned this, Roger, when you said purpose. The first question is, what is the chief end of man? What is the chief end of man? And every child and every person, even a grown-up who learns that, learns the answer. And the answer is to glorify God, number one, number two, and to enjoy him forever. To glorify God and enjoy him forever is the chief end, the purpose of man. There is no other purpose. There is no higher purpose. It's the only purpose. Not glorify yourself. Not glorify Donald Trump. Not glorify Joe Biden. Not glorify the Holocaust. Not glorify the land of Israel. Not glorify nothing. Glorify your maker. That make him look better. And it's, consecu it's consecution. Consequential. If you make him look better, if you glorify him, you, the consequence is you enjoy him forever. To glorify God and enjoy him forever. The Bible says that over and over, and that is the theme of the Bible as to the race of man. And if this, now the, the uh, Presbyterian church in America, which came from Scotland and then came from, from, uh, from Ireland, the Scotch-Irish brought it over. Those are the Scottish people that transplanted to Northern Ireland. That became the foundation of American government. And why do I say that? Because Princeton Seminary, Princeton College, was the Presbyterian College in New Jersey. James Madison was a graduate of that school. Many other fellows that, many other fellows that signed our founding documents. And the president of Princeton College, when James Madison and those other fellows were there, was a man by the name of John Witherspoon. He was a signer of those documents as well. Mm -hmm. John Witherspoon they, was uh, recruited by Americans to come from Scotland and become the president, the, uh, one of the presidents of Princeton College. Princeton College was a Bible college. John Witherspoon was the leader of the Scottish Enlightenment. It was a Christian movement at first. It went awry later, but the Scottish Enlightenment said two things. said there are two volumes of God's revelation of his will to man. The first volume is unwritten. The laws of nature, says our Declaration of 76. The second volume is written. That's our Bible. The first volume is the law of the land. It is our common law, unwritten. It's the lex non scripta. The second volume is the Bible, written. That's what our Declaration of 76 says. That's John Witherspoon. John Witherspoon came to America. He's called the father of the fathers of America, because he's the one that was in charge of the education of many of the shakers and movers that put the country together. John Witherspoon, the Scotsman, when the, I forget which parliamentarian it was, it stood up in parliament and said, he said this, he said during the American war for separation from Britain, he said, Amer cousin America, cousin America has run off with a Presbyterian preacher. <laughs> and everybody, and, and then he said, or a Presbyterian parson, Cousin America, I'm quoting, Cousin America has run off with a Presbyterian parson. And everybody in Parliament knew who that parson was. It was John Witherspoon. Now that's the story that's not told, as Paul Harvey used to say. But it comes down to a man whose mind was immersed, because even yet today in the Bible-believing Presbyterian denominations, the Presbyt and there are a few of them here in America, and there's some in Northern Ireland, they all say 
if you're going to be a, a clergyman, you're going to be a parson in this Presbyterian group, you have to swear that you agree substantially. It's not the Bible. The, the Westminster Confession is not the Bible. So they don't require you to believe implicitly and without exception, but they do say you must adhere and believe substantially in the truth of the Westminster Confession. And if you have a reservation about something, that's okay. And, you know, every man's allowed to disregard what he thinks is not a proper expression of what the Bible says. But that particular document, you can look it up on the Internet, and it covers all the tough questions we're talking about today when it comes to politics. There hasn't been a group, I say, in America, the Puritans. The Puritans were very influential. There was the English Reformed tradition. They were Anglicans. The Puritans were Anglicans. They were called Puritans because people said they wanted to purify the Anglican church. And they did, of course. They, they wanted to do away with wedding bands. They did away with the celebration of Christmas. It was against the law in Puritan New England to celebrate Christmas. It was even a misdemeanor to make a mincemeat pie back in the beginning. Really? Talk about, oh, yeah. Because, of course, they said, and they were right, wedding bands are Babylonian. They are. Christmas is Babylonian in England. Listen, when, when Washington crossed the Delaware to attack the Hessians and surprise them, and he did, and he defeated them and killed quite a few of them, remember what they were celebrating? Christmas. They were celebrating Christmas because they were German. And the, the Babylonian movement of Christmas had engulfed the Germanic states by that time. But it had not engulfed England when we separated. Christmas was not a big deal in America. To the Americans, we were English-speaking people. It wasn't a big deal to us. But it became a big deal in the uh, mid-1800s with, uh, with uh, the writing of the, the story of uh, Ebenezer Scrooge, uh, A Christmas Carol. Well, isn't there some verse in the Old Testament that says, don't have trees that you decorate inside your house? Prophet Jeremiah, yeah, he, he Christmas, right? Prophet Jeremiah said, "Yeah, you do all these things." He's talking about what Israel does and how they did it there. Of course, they didn't have evergreens, but it comes back to the worship of the woodland. And remember, in the Old Testament, constantly, oh, dozens of times, it says, "You shall not have any high places. You shall not have any groves of trees near the the altars that you that you put up for me." And of course, they weren't put up. Fancy altars, they were just a pile of rocks because he didn't want them worshiping to look at things as all as idol worship. So, but no groves because groves around altars give opportunity for secrecy. And that was the worship of Asher, which means a grove of trees, you know, the holly and mistletoe mm -hmm. and the maypole. Those are the, the Germanic expressions of Babylonian religion. Uh, Odin worship, uh, all those kinds of things come into that. And that's part of our pagan and past. Holly, Hollywood yeah. is used to, uh, to cast spells? Hollywood. I, you know, I read one time, I, I, I was persuaded it was true, Roger, that there was a Scotsman, speaking of Scotsman, that traveled around America founding towns for the railroads. And he's responsible. Hundreds of towns he founded. I forget his name. He founded the town called Hollywood. And, uh, of course, he would name them whatever he wanted them, to name them. And he was walking in the hills there, uh, where now Hollywood is, and, and he ran into a Chinaman. And the Chinaman had a cart. He was pulling a cart, and it had uh, cordwood in it. And he said, what you, how you doing today? What you up to? And he said, me, Hollywood. Me, Hollywood. <laughs> <laughs> 
True story. I think that's true story. <laughs> so Harry, he, no, so. he couldn't have said that. He would have said, me, Harry would. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> that's like the guy I read about. This true story. There are two places in Montana like that that I've read about. One of them is Two Dot. Two Dot, Montana. There's a little town up in Montana yeah. called Two Dot. And right. the reason they called it Two Dot because the, the cattleman up there that kind of got the business going, got the railroad in up there with Old Hill, get the, so he could have a market to ship his cattle back to the stockyards in Chicago, a straight shot, you know, across the, the north end of the country. And uh, he, had a, he had a brand for his cattle, and it was just two dots. And uh, he, he used that brand. He thought it was harder to, to change, you know, so they called the town two dot. But there's another place up there. And uh, in the earlier days, I probably in the late 1800s, some fella fishing in a creek up there, and another fella come along walking, and he was had just got into Montana, and he said, the "Guy with the fishing pole sitting there." He said, "What's the name of this place?" He said, "Hell if I know." And uh, there's a place in Montana called Hell if I know. Hell, no, it's called <laughs> Hell. Hell. No, wait, wait. It's called Hell Fino. Hell Fino. Hell Fino. Kind of slurred it. Hell Fino, Montana. Now we got a place at home. We got a place at home called uh, uh, Kinmundy. Kinmundy. K i n m u n d y. K-I-N-M-U-N-D-Y. And uh, this true story, too, there was a blacksmith in that little village in the early days. And, of course, people bring their hoes and their axes and their mattocks to him to sharpen. And he, he put it over and set them over in the corner. He said, and then people say, well, when you, can you get that to me? And he'd always, no matter what day of the week it was, he'd always say the same thing. He'd say, I can't get to it today, but it can Monday. So they called that town Ken Monday, and it's still Ken Monday this day. <laughs> Ken Monday. Well, no, funny things like that. Hey, Brett. What's that? What's right. yeah, Brian, Daryl's uh, chomping at the bit to get on. He, he called, he hung up, and he came nah. back. So I know he's got something to say, and a man is never a lack of words. Hey, Daryl. Hey, good morning. Uh, no, I've been I've been actually waiting patiently. I think, but uh, uh, you have, you have. I want to go. I want to go back to. I want to go back to uh, some things you were talking about earlier, Brent. And there's a uh, there is an, an exacting word that connects uh, these uh, these things people call rights and uh, uh, their property and this thing called the Constitution. And there's a word, and it, it's left out. It's not been used. I don't hear anybody use it, and they don't use it in context. And it draws all these together. <clears throat> I'm, I'm building it up here. There's, it's such an important word. I think that's why it's left out. Uh-huh. Because it 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 transcends the, the separation, the split of the thing that people can't put their finger on that they've lost. They've lost something, and they can't put their finger on it. And if you can't verbalize it, well, they're not going to tell you. Mm-hmm. Well, this word, this word, this simple word is hereditament. And uh, since you you evoked the name of, uh, of Daniel Webster that provoked me to look in his book, mm-hmm. and he says, uh, hereditament. Any species of property that may be inherited, lands, tenements, anything corporeal or incorporeal, real, 
personal or mixed that may descend to an a hair. Now it goes on to say, a corporeal hereditament is visible and tangible. <clears throat> well, uh, that might be uh, land, soil, your grandfather's car. An incorporeal hereditament is an ideal right existing in contemplation of law, issuing out of substantial corporeal property. So this one word <clears throat> encompasses a corporeal and its relationship to the incorporeal. And I say that if you are in possession of your hereditament, they're indivisible. Of course, only an individual could inherit something. So that is consistent with an individual being indivisible. And people have allowed themselves to be uh, come divisible. And so uh, this idea of hereditament is a very big, uh, big issue because it, it brings to bear the, the point of what you've lost. It also, I think, is very applicable to the other part of the conversations that is never brought in by anybody called the Ninth Amendment to this uh, Constitution. And it says uh, the Ninth Amendment is the enumeration in the Constitution of certain rights shall not be construed to deny or disparage others retained by the people. Um, nobody ever talks about that. Well, well what's the list? <laughs> what's the list of these things that, that, that I have? Well, uh, they, they can be, they can be almost anything, <laughs> mm -hmm. but, uh, we've lost our hereditament. Yep. Mm -hmm. The hereditament has been, has been swindled, uh, bamboozled, uh, flim obfuscated, uh, flim flammed. Uh, right. It's been, uh, con artist, uh, you pick your, pick your adjective, Pick your pronoun. I don't really care because the evidence is you don't have the hereditament. And uh, what got me on this word was about four years ago when I wrote. A, I read a book. I like to read. I like to read a lot of things that other people don't read because they're irritating. And uh, it came up in two books. One by uh, a man by the name of Menuhin. Well, yeah, he's Jewish. And uh, he writes a book that says, To Tell the Truth and Shame the Devil. Mm -hmm. And then there was another book written by a guy, some cat by the name of Shlomo Sand. Mm -hmm. <laughs> what's, what's he sound like? He sounds like he's, he's identifying himself as Jewish. Mm -hmm. And he writes a book called The Invention of the Jewish People. Mm -hmm. Well, Neither one of these books are real popular with the synagogue because mm -hmm. <laughs> mm -hmm. they're, they're whistleblowers. And in both of those books, you will find passages where the object, the, the intent and the objective into the law and legal system mm -hmm. and the m m magic money system mm -hmm. 
okay, what you guys were talking about earlier is just pure magic. That's magic money. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, in both those cases, as you read through those 500-page books, you'll see that they're, the intent and objective on the long haul mm-hmm. was to prive you of your hereditament. Yep. Mm-hmm. And this is, this, is, this is at the crux of what the corporeal people are experiencing right now and can't put their finger on it. You see what it is, Daryl? Let's put our finger on it. They're PO'd because they sold the blessing for a bowl of porridge and they're going to steal it back. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's a... This is... (laughs) This could be part of Esau's fables, right? So... uh, I, I just wanted to I just wanted to drag that out, and I also wanted to make a connection on this issue of the the, the matter of race. And race took on a completely different connotation in the early 1800s with a uh, a uh, Episcopal uh, preacher from England named Malthus. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and and his ideas, which were picked up by uh, the Darwin family and the Galtons, which then uh, they were the progenitors taking Malthus's work and their ideas on race, and permit and and from that forms the basis of Darwin. So. Uh, um, you can't really be, uh, if, you, if you claim to be a student of the Bible and embrace its, its covenants, you really have a problem with being a racist. Uh, and, but I, I need to qualify that because the, the racist and race has been redefined. It's been redefined, and it's been redefined through Darwinianism. And... Of course, this has turned in. They've allowed they over the over the last you know 180 years, 200 years, this perversion and understanding of what words means and peoples has allowed them to create uh, transition from uh, biblical understandings to understandings in human secularism. So we have Christians who actually are human secularist Christians. Yep. And uh, so this is this is uh, this is <laughs> it's kind of kind of short on the end of the end of the show here. But th- these are some of the big ideas that uh, have got us to the point where we can't under people cannot even understand the little ideas. So, um, I well, you can't. Go ahead, go ahead, Roger. Well, I was going to add something. If you want to continue and address what Daryl said, please do take the forefront. No, go ahead. Well, I came, you know, we were talking earlier about understanding. And Mm -hmm. if you get enough knowledge, you you get understandings given to you. Mm -hmm. And you and I have talked about it before. You mentioned it one day. It's kind of become a mantra for me. When you learn the basics, anything's easy. Okay. Well, a couple, a while back, it hit me. I said, well, you know, it... The Civil War was set up to bring these amendments in. And I've been toying with that for, I don't know, a year, year and a half, two years, something like that. Mm -hmm. But it hit me this week 
actually over the weekend of how you prove that. If the Civil War was fought over race and to free the slaves, the 14th Amendment would mention the Negro race. And it does. Yeah. It sets up up the feudal system with the first three words by assigning political status at birth and bringing Mm -hmm. in the feudal system. And it sets up all persons so that they can include everybody 100 years later. One of the great. uh, Go ahead, Daryl. Go ahead. Well, I just want to. I'm not I'm not trying to ante up on the. What's on the table here, Roger, but I'm going to take it a step further. If it, if it hadn't been about race and creating division, and if it had been based upon morals and ethics and values and virtues found and contained in Scripture, they wouldn't have had any need for a 14th Amendment because they would have integrated these people into the very basis of state citizens, but that would not have allowed them to reconstruct a new constitution and a new class of people. Well, they would have, they would have made them state, state peoples, uh, just like uh, everybody else. Well, but they didn't. And that proves that proves intent. And they had another chance to do it in Ferguson and Plessy. And what side did they de- default to? They decided to uh, get rid of Ferguson and make everybody a Plessy. Plessy. Now, there's a little history <laughs> that leads up to that. There, there's a vacuum there, and it's worth talking about. It's, it's brought up in the slaughterhouse cases point blank. And it refers back to Dred Scott and the decision of the Dred Scott case. And then it makes a statement. It was a discussion in the public journals and in uh, the newspapers of the day whether, because of Dred Scott, whether a person who'd been born in D.C. in the territories and always lived there could be a citizen of the nation because they weren't the citizen of the state. Now, where that's being brought up today is this new bunch up there is trying to make Puerto Rico and D.C. a state. You know, I think all this would go away, all this confusion over citizenship, and it is confusion in most people's minds, if we would... Uh, struggle harder, struggle harder to see what the Bible says about that matter. And the Bible says, as a general principle among men, number one, that there will not be two laws within the geographic boundaries of your country. That's what God said to Israel. There will be one law, and it will apply the way I want it to apply. And the history of mankind, we continue to struggle in Spain, for instance. Let me back up. I got a little time. I can tell this one, I guess. You know, the, the Goths came down and sacked Rome. Well, who were the Goths? They came down in about five, no, 250,000 strong. Not, that's men, women, and children. Nobody knows why they got up and left, but they left the Goths. Or the Goths. Those are the Swedes. Who are the Swedes? They're Anglo-Saxons. The Swedes are Anglo-Saxons. They're Sweden was colonized, a fellow by the name of Geeting, who was an Anglo-Saxon. Well, we don't know whether he's Anglo or Saxon. Those are two separate tribes. And then the other tribe was the Jutes, the Danes, the Danes, commonly called the Vikings. But the Goths came down, of that, that, that kind of people, came down to the borders of the Roman Empire, and they asked the emperor for permission to enter, 
He said no, and they said, well, we don't like your answer. So they went to war, and they defeated the Roman legions at the Battle of Andropel and came into the Roman Empire, came down into Rome, sacked the place, ate everything that wasn't nailed down, stayed about five years, and when all the food and goodies were gone, got up and left. <laughs> and when they left, they went to Spain, and they mixed with the Spaniards. Well, that created a problem for the Spaniards. And it wasn't long until the Spaniards began to say, well, we've got to have two laws here. We've got to have one for these Goths. And one, when, we go, when a Goth goes to court against a Goth, we'll have, they can use their common law because they had a common law fundamentally like ours. But when a Goth goes to law in our courts, our tribunals against a Spaniard, we're going to have to use a different law. And, when, and uh, well, they had all these different scenarios worked out and what law would be used but the long of the, the short of the long of it is it never worked and it didn't work because they were violating that principle that god had set up in his law where he said there will be one law one way to deal with things and if you we had the same problem in oklahoma you remember that movie true grit one of the last movies john wayne made it was about a federal judge in fort smith arkansas who had criminal jurisdiction over white men in the Indian Territory. A criminal jurisdiction over white men in the Indian Territory. Now we're back to that stupidity again. Well, what's a white man? What about what about the Cherokee kid that mounted a cannon on top of a mountain down there around Winding Stair Mountain and held off the feds for the longest time? He was white and red. Did the did the federal court have jurisdiction over him? Nobody knows. <laughs> so they so they, they created a confusion about um, who, now we go to Oklahoma today and there, there's a whole race of people down there that are white and red, I should say Indian and, and white. And then when you go into the grocery stores in southeast Oklahoma, you don't see anybody that isn't mix, mixed that way among the Indians and the white people. Well, this thing about trying to decide, and then we've got the same thing in Canada, they've got a problem. They try to set the... The, the Indian tribes aside and give them special consideration, send them a stipend every year. Now we're falling into that stupidity here. It doesn't work because you can't figure things out. So when you talk about citizenship, that's a foreign concept. It's a Babylonian idea to start with. The way we, even the word itself is mm -hmm. purely Babylonian. Mm -hmm. It's from the law of the city, the code of Justinian. Mm -hmm. uh, it's an unfortunate and unhappy circumstance that it's part of our constitution. The early first fathers, the Puritans, and the, the reform groups called us freemen. They didn't talk about citizenship. They talked about freemanship. There's a difference. That's the words we should be using. We should start a, we should start a movement right here doing that and get the word we citizenship do. out of our vocabulary. We do. I, I use political yeah. status. But when you do that, that Roger, when you do that, you're using the Greek form of the word citizen because the word politics and political well, is the Greek word for the law of the city. Well, I understand, well, uh, <laughs> but it is it is political status, over. okay? Yeah. I mean, if you go back to the 14th Amendment and the phrase, the magic phrase, and subject to the jurisdiction thereof, that was covered in Elk versus Wilkins in the 1870s or 80s, and they said that phrase means completely subject to the political jurisdiction thereof. So, and that's exactly what it says. That's not hard. No, 
and, oh, and so political status, I think, gets the concept across easier than having Chris come in here and confuse them all on the word citizen and go back with all of that stuff. So <laughs> or Brent, I'm trying or, or Brent, to un I'm trying to unconfuse people. Okay? I, know. I know, but it is. But see, that is the confusion when those words come in. They they pack in. They they freight in all the things that go with them. I was thinking this morning, for instance, about. Uh, democracy. Of course, the Bible nowhere gives any example or mentions the word democracy or the idea of democracy or the concept. Indeed, God says of his people, they are always the remnant. They're always the leftovers. They're always in the minority. Well, democracy is majority rule. No question. The Greeks promoted the idea. They didn't distinguish between a republic and a democracy, fundamentally the same thing. And if you want democracy, or if you even want republicanism, and you're a Christian man, I'm going to tell you what's going to happen to you. Your rights that Daryl was talking about, attached to corporal things, are going to be trampled, because you're in the remnant, and you'll always be in the remnant. That's the way, it's, that's the way it'll work. Democracy is not part, but we have allowed the idea of democracy, and with it citizenship, and these other Greek concepts, and They've perverted what they really mean. They really mean that your rights are going to be trampled. Republicanism, the same thing. It's no different. Isn't it funny? We have two political parties, and, they, and the names of them both mean fundamentally the same thing, according to the people that invented the idea and pushed it, the, the Greeks, who were Babylonians well, of the hill. Go ahead. That's that's like that's like uh, uh, nationalists and federalists. Yeah, well, yeah, if, yeah. effectively, there's no distinction. There's a distinction without a difference. Uh, so, listen, uh, I completely agree with your your uh, addressing uh, the language, the lexicon, and the grammar. Uh, I I don't. Uh, I, I'm very I'm very nitpicky about it, uh, and for any number of reasons. So. Uh, you know, you can talk to people about persons. You can talk to persons about their U.S. identity, and they don't, they don't really have any issue with that. Well, I don't have an identity. Okay, I don't have one. I have a nature. <laughs> I, I, I don't. I don't need somebody else's identity. I don't have to identify with an identity. I have a nature, and my nature comes from the, the spirit and uh, my uh, uh, my faith okay that's where my nature comes from and so uh, am I just being am I just being difficult here well those mean the same thing well no they don't identity and nature are are two different things and completely different things. And here we have a Latin well, word again. Identity yeah. is another Latin word, yeah. freighting in. And yeah. person, I think somebody said last time, maybe it was you, person means to wear a mask. That's absolutely true. So you're back yeah. to words packing in ideas. But don't forget, they're, they're, these are sticks yeah. and stones ahead, can right. break my bones, but words can just enslave me. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's right. I, I, uh, I uh, would just... In closing here, I would just submit to you that we're watching the process of a uh, another reconstruction, and uh, they've at a, they're at a point now where they feel so empowered that uh, from a from a trans global political situation and economic situation, they are going to do another reconstruction, and they they fully well intend to address this two this two law 
or multiple law issue, Brent. They, mm-hmm. I, I think they're in agreement with you. They're, they they want to go back to one law. Yep. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, the wrong one. And, uh, the wrong yeah, one. Yeah, it, yeah. That's, that's correct. That's correct. That's correct. So, um, uh, so this is this is what we're this is what they call about the great reset. It's also about the great game, and it's also about the great work. And who uses this language are the human secular masons. This is all Masonic. Yep. This is has Masonic roots into it. I can prove it. Yep. I have it in their own language. Yep. I have read their books, yep. and I have it going back into the early 1800s, and uh, and so on and henceforth. So all of your courts, all your judges in your courts that you attend to, Brent, I, I would assure you, if we could ever find out, I would say that 99% of them. Are are mid level or higher masons? To you know, be in masonry, that and they I are have, they are yeah. human secularists. They are yeah. they are not Christian. They are human secularists, and they believe that they will make good men better and reach apotheosis. They will be gods. So, when I was a boy growing up, uh, I was in the oil field, and everybody around me worked in the oil field. And Ohio Oil Company was dominant, and they had that large tank farm there, and they had production, and and uh, everybody that worked to have an, a job in the oil field was to have a plum. And I, especially back during the Depression, people would tell me how that other people were desperate, but if you had a job in the oil field, it was easy, relatively, and you had steady pay. And I had a great granddad that worked for Ohio Oil, which was later called Marathon, and uh, he retired about the time I was born. And the reason he retired was because he couldn't advance any further. And he was aroused about. That means he was an oil johnny. He pumped the wells and the, and the powerhouses down there uh, near the bottom. And he quit because he couldn't advance any further. His retirement couldn't have been any better because he refused to be a mason. And in the oil business and in the mining business, masonry has always been. You go to these little mining towns out west. You'll find the old Masonic building right downtown. Huge buildings, usually. You know, With no that windows. became the Brotherhood. Yeah, and uh, then my my granddad, my father's dad, he got blackballed. He grew up in the oil field when it first started around the turn of the last century, and uh, but he was he was good at it, knew what he was doing. But they blackballed him. They wouldn't let him advance because he wouldn't become a part of the Masons. And then another experience with my father. And I also, when I had, when I was a military man, I was in certain communities where if you weren't a Mason, you couldn't advance. I saw that too. This is all real. And it, 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 it creeps into every little part of our world. And it becomes the, just like Judaism, you know, that those fellows stick together in tab. Uh, Babylonian Judaism, Masons stick together, uh, Romanists yeah. stick together, Islamic people stick together. It's all true. Who's going to take that away from the way men are? They're going to do that. But the question is, if I don't want to join the evil empire, what am I going to do? And that's why we're in the remnant, and that's why we have the Bible to give us instruction how to live in this world controlled by these evil empires, as uh, Stan Monteith used to call them. And that's the question. How do you live in the world, in the world order, said Jesus Christ, and not be from it? And that is what the Bible tells us how to well, do. Back to you. I was honored Brent, twice I just gotta, to be on stage. I just have a simple program. question. For Go ahead. Yeah, I'm sorry. That's okay. There's, there's a really simple uh, joiner to your question. Uh-huh. What's your price? 
what yeah, is your price, right. Brent? That's What's good. your price, Roger? What's yeah. your price, everybody listening on the call in the audience? What's your price? Do you have principles? Well, I would tell you, I would suggest the evidence shows that the principles that people claim they they don't live up to. That's a good point. Because this is what's your price? They were going to find your price. They're going to find it. Some mm-hmm. are cheap. Some are more expensive. I'll tell you what my price is. It's my life. Mm-hmm. That's what it'll cost those people. Mm-hmm. Brent, I have mm-hmm. a feeling cost- there's probably some new folks on today that were not had heard had not heard you before. I'm going to give you, although we're almost out of time, if you'll tell them where they can get more Brent Winters, please. Go to commonlawyer.com. That's www.commonlawyer.com. That's the website. You can see where we are on the, on the radio. Uh, you can listen to us three hours a day, three hours a day, I believe. Yeah, three different times uh, on the radio, and which is, of course, live streamed on the Internet. And you can listen to me talk from Now to the Cows Come Home, and you can find the books there. Among those books is Excellence of the Common Law, Common Lawyer comments concerning the law of the land versus the law of the city a comparative law text of 958 pages and then also other little booklets about the right to remain silent jury duty and also then uh, the winterized version of the bible a common lawyer translates and annotates the bible from the original tongues uh, fit over 15,000 footnotes 123 appendices tracing the major themes of the bible through the warp and woof of the context. I say that on the radio so I can rattle that off pretty quick, Roger. You did a good job. You covered a lot of ground there, Brent. We're always happy to have you here on Fridays, and there's been some real, real great understanding for a lot of people that have come out of some of these shows. Totally spontaneous. So we'll see you next Friday. And, well, uh, we all we all appreciate you, Roger, for platforming. This. Well, I like I said, I get a lot of rewards out of this, and you can't put a dollar price on it. I'll see y'all on Monday. We'll see what happens over the weekend. Have a good one, and uh, hope you got something to ruminate on from today's gathering. See you Monday. Hasta la vista, baby, and all you crazy demons too. <laughs>